this is Sri with Sleep Review, and I am thrilled to be here with Mitchell Levine, DMD, ABDSM, who was recently installed as the president of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, including how you came to practice dental sleep medicine? Uh, sure. Thank you, Sri, and thank you for having me uh, with you um, today. Um, I'm an orthodontist by training, and I've been practicing sleep for probably more than a dozen years now. I had a private practice in Florida for more than 30 years, of which about a third of my patients were um, patients who presented with some sort of sleep disordered breathing. Um, I, I, I kind of got involved in postgraduate education about um, five years ago. The first four years were at um, University of Tennessee in Memphis. And in the last 14 months, um, I've been here at uh, St. Louis University, um, and I got involved really because the science of sleep, I found it just um, overwhelmingly compelling to me. Um, I really hoped that orthodontics would be kind of like the missing piece. As I've spent, you know, the last um, five years uh, involved in, in um, the academic side of this, what I think I've found in my mind is that really the physiological burden still seems to be greater than the anatomic burden, but still since there's, you know, a role for anatomy um, and as an orthodontist, this kind of gives me like a sandbox to play in. Uh, what motivated you to become involved in AADSM leadership? Well, I, I thought that there could be more to the definition of dental sleep medicine. Um, I really thought that there'd be a greater role than just perhaps oral clients therapy. And I thought that maybe as a specialist, someone who could, you know, change anatomy also, that maybe I could help, you know, expand the direction of the academy. And I found the um, collaborative nature, the interdisciplinary nature of sleep in particular to be really important. And I thought that this would be a, um, a good segue getting involved with the um, AADSM. And, and eventually, I really I, I came to believe that the academy could be a leader, not only in um, postgraduate education, but my hope was that we could help it find a place in um, delivering undergraduate dental education um, as well. And so I think over these last five to six years that I've been involved, I think that we've established a, um, a, a good foundational educational uh, program in dental sleep medicine, and uh, accordingly, what we've we've been able to accomplish is, you know, um, increasing the number of qualified dentists who can provide uh, oral appliance therapy. I still think that um, DSM is pretty much in its infancy, and I think the AADSM can evolve. I hope it can evolve and become a truly, you know, integral part, integral necessity to the practice of DSM for, um, for all of us, both nationally and internationally. How has COVID changed the practice of dental sleep medicine? Well, COVID has probably changed not only the practice of, of dental sleep medicine, but it's certainly changed all of our lives. In particular, um, I think COVID helped us um, appreciate the fact that um, treating patients who have sleep apnea um, is important because many studies have shown us that those who um, were afflicted by COVID actually had um, a greater impact um, as related to that COVID. I think it also um, helped bring to the forefront how we could um, 
integrate telehealth into um, our dental practices. And I think I think what we're going to see is is a movement that not only just in dental sleep medicine, but I think just uh, dentistry as a whole. And then um, probably an unintended um, effect, I guess all these were unintended, but um, in particular what were the effects of uh, supply chain issues with um, CPAP. And then um, compounded by the fact that there was this recall of, um, of uh, PAP devices really has resulted in a, um, a shortage of um, available PAP modalities. And accordingly, I think what we're seeing as a reflection of this is um, an increased utility utilization of, um, of oral appliances, either in a stopgap mode or even now as a long-term definitive therapy. You had touched on this a little in that last response. I was curious about how, if at all, do you personally use telehealth in your own dental sleep practice? Well, in, in academics, it's probably a little bit different. I think in, um, you know, in a dental practice, and, and I know of people who are not only utilizing telehealth um, to screen patients, but to even actually you know, deliver devices. They'll, they'll hand them the device um, you know, through a window, through, into their car window, and then and have an assistant or somebody actually walk the patient through on how to, um, you know, deliver the, the deliver the device to themselves. In an academic um, environment, I think it's a, a little bit different. As a training institution, um, we really find that um, for us, you know, the resident to de deliver an oral appliance and then um, help manage the patient uh, through follow up is really best done in person um, at this point. And I think we're probably going to continue doing this um, until we get a, um, a comfort level on both parties on exploring uh, telehealth in a, in, a, in, a, in a different modality. Do you think that's because of demographic differences, like the types of patients that you see in an academic setting, or why is that? Um, I think part of it is that I, I, I think the, uh, there's not as much an expanded mindset of the, um, of the resident of, at, at this point. And I think a hands-on being able to uh, see a patient and touch a patient, I think it's more just that um, the ability of, of, the, of the resident dentist as opposed to the practicing dentist, I just don't think the skill set's expanded quite as much to utilize that. I do see it happening um, over time. But like in our clinic, for example, um, we've just been delivering now oral devices over the last six months. And so it's still new to them. And I think that um, it's easier once you've delivered a couple, then to have another process where someone, where it's done remotely, I think would be, um, it would be more amenable to that, um, to that direction. But I think as they're learning to just begin to deliver their first and second devices, it's more incumbent upon them to be, um, um, within the confines of a safe, safer space, maybe. That makes sense. I do like the idea of like um, giving patients their device through the car window and then maybe training them on it through like a telehealth application on how to put it in. Um, Cause that's just kind of meeting patients where they are and, and sure. keeping it safe for patients who don't feel like, who don't feel like they are comfortable coming in. That's a cool idea. Um, switching topics a little bit, um, the AADSM published a paper that provides a consensus-based standardized 
and oral appliance specific definition of compliance. Um, it defined it as the appliance being worn for a minimum of uh, at least uh, greater to or equal to 80% of nights. Uh, I think it's 80% of the time per night for five or more nights a week. Um, how has that definition impacted clinical practice so far? Obviously, we've had a definition of CPAP adherence for a long time, but this is really the first like standardized um, definition of oral appliance adherence. Sure. So even the, um, the definition um, for compliance with um, PAP um, is, is, is evolving to some extent. Um, and this seems to be in response to some, um, you know, um, outside pressures. Uh, in, in particular, I don't know yet, I don't know that we can uh, qualify exactly how um, it's impacting clinical practice in particular, but I think we do recognize that, you know, some sort of regimented compliance really emphasizes the benefit that, you know, it only comes by wearing the device, whether it is an oral device or a, um, a CPAP. And in line with um, the ASM recommendations of of sleep duration, somewhere being in that seven hours per night, I think the consensus task force, and this was a consensus uh, statement that came out, um, considered the role of, of things like sleep hygiene and other considerations that coming to this definition of, of 80% per night for at least um, five nights per week. The guidelines kind of give um, a, a, an ongoing evolving metric that can be improved over time. That is, some patients, when they get their devices, um, may struggle for wearing them 80% of the night. And I think the idea is that um, there's a goal that we're trying to achieve, but that if a patient can only manage, you know, two to three hours, at least initially, that they understand that um, for a, um, um, an ideal management of their sleep disorder breathing, that the goal is to get to this 80% 80, 80 or time or greater um, for at least um, those five nights a week. Ideally, a patient would clearly be wearing this um, all night and, and wearing it every night. Um, but um, I think we have to appreciate that some patients, even with oral devices, just like um, you know with CPAP, some patients struggle uh, with compliance. And if they feel like they're not getting that 80% of wear, then um, I think we have to explore the, you know, the potential for alternative therapies um, uh, beyond what we're providing right now. What are your thoughts on the sensors uh, currently in development to be embedded into oral appliances uh, that hope to track not only whether the patient is wearing the device, but also metrics such as AHI or even EEG? And again, this is kind of like what's we've had at least parts of this for CPAP for a long time, but now it seems like in the near future we'll have these um, tracking for oral appliances as well. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I just came back from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and there were a handful, three or four um, device manufacturers there, and they're all now, you know, pumping up the idea of using um, um, sensors or, or some sort of compliance modalities. None of them were really able to show those, um, those um, uh, chips or sensors in their devices just yet, but this is all coming around the corner, it would certainly seem. Um, it, it's kind of interesting, you know, science and technology are definitely evolving. And I think the AADSM as an academy recognizes that um, it's important that our guidelines and, and our resources also reflect 
you know, this, these new updated uh, technologies and reflect the new evidence that's coming around, um, around the corner. But trajectories themselves really are, are, you know, are, are rarely straight. And so just as we're beginning to explore the idea of, of tracking AHI, for example, it's kind of interesting now that there's a, there's a movement, albeit slow, but a movement of getting away from AHI, right? So, you know, how will this new technology um, fit in an evolving world where the AHI is becoming more of a compromised metric? Um, it'll be interesting to see if we can begin to somehow really use these devices other than just uh, figuring out how much time someone is wearing them, which is important to be sure. Um, but unlike CPAP, you know, we were hoping that we would be able to uh, track really whether there is a, um, a management of the AHI or the hypopnic burden, whatever it ends up being. So just as these devices are coming on, they're probably going to have to continue their evolution to meet uh, new definitions as they begin to arise in sleep medicine. I agree. I mean, I'm glad to see that these are in development and I think some are very close, but I think that you're right. There's been a lot of talk about is AHI even the best measurement for somebody's sleep apnea and whether it's really being treated effectively or not. Um, I was interested that one of the devices um, says it's going to be able to measure EEG from inside the patient's mouth. And so that presumably could measure a lot more uh, things um, than just the AHI. Um, so maybe that'll be more useful. But yeah, I agree. Those devices, when they're available, they're going to have to keep evolving too. Absolutely. Uh, what research uh, on would you like to see done in the field of dental sleep medicine? Um, probably because more of where I'm, I'm coming from. Um, but I think I'd like to see more on the evidence of the real implications of risk factors as they relate to um, obstructive sleep apnea. There's a lot of chatter out there, as, as you're probably aware, that, um, you know, um, that risk factors um, are, 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 are more cause and effect, and that's hardly the case. There is no cause and effect uh, relationship. And so that even if we mitigate these risk factors, they don't necessarily make a whole big difference in controlling the OSA. So what I would like to see, truthfully, is, is um, the beginning of longitudinal studies, longitudinal studies that really look at the real benefit um, as we attempt to modify denofacial anatomy, now, I'm not talking about the severe craniofacial things, right? Those unto themselves are, there, there may be a cause and effect relationship because uh, the discrepancies are just so severe. But I'm, I'm talking about really more on the, um, the patients, the general pediatric dental patient who comes in to an orthodontic office. You know, what are the implications there by really mitigating these supposed um, risk factors and um, what will be the benefit or otherwise of um, the therapies that we're providing. So to me, that's where I think the next step really is. And um, there are challenges, right? There are challenges because even as we're doing this therapy um, in children in particular, these kids are growing. And there's no doubt that some of the mitigating factors of growth um, exist at reducing the um, OSA burden. So do we attribute it to therapy? Do we attribute it to um, growth? Um, it, it, it's hard to know at this point. And I think 
we'd all be better served by some better answers. It's a great suggestion. Uh, what, if anything, do you hope will have changed in dental sleep medicine by the end of your two-year term as AADSM president? So I, I, I think that obviously this is, you know, we're just a, a few days into my uh, presidency, but I think that there's a, um, a lot of opportunity, you know, moving forward over the next two years. I think one of the things that we've already begun to do is, is, is at some levels begin to uh, uh, ameliorate the burden of OSA by having more qualified dentists um, engaged in um, oral appliance delivery. And I think that over the next two years, we'll educate um, a good deal number of dentists who feel both confident in their abilities and their skill sets to um, uh, treat more adults. And I think accordingly, we'll see more adults um, in, in uh, a care as well. One of the other initiatives that we've um, embarked upon over the last year is um, through our um, academic council where we have um, uh, efforts at introducing uh, dental sleep medicine into the curriculums of, um, of the dental schools. Now I recognize that CODA, the Council on Dental Accreditation, um, doesn't require any education per se right now in dental sleep medicine, but with the, um, uh, the role of, the, um, uh, of screening through the ADA and other efforts uh, with our academic council, I think that we're seeing increased interest, certainly in the dental schools, and I hope that we'll be able to help enhance um, the curriculum at the D1 to D4 uh, levels. Even just in, in, in postgraduate education here, um, since I've been at SLU, we've actually been able to, um, uh, we offer a, a full semester course in dental sleep medicine with our, um, our graduate residents. And they are also have a clinical experience where they get to deliver um, several oral appliances as well. So I think there's ample opportunity in both postgraduate and, and, and uh, dental and undergraduate dental education um, to make a difference as well. And then I think over time, I think we can um, um, enhance and build upon um, the somewhat uh, challenging relationships that exist between um, dentists and physicians. I think that there's more nurturing that can be done. And I think that um, that will be part of um, part of my intent over the next uh, several years. And I think that we're going to see a more of a leveling of the playing field between um, physicians and dentists. So I, I don't think we're going to see much of a change yet in who does the diagnosing. I think that that's still um, certainly within the purview of, um, uh, of physicians as they, man as they um, you know, diagnose OSA. But I think the management, the care um, can begin to be relegated to um, other players and other providers, including um, dentists. And I think that um, what we'll see is a, um, a, um, a greater capacity to reduce, I hope, this, you know, this um, social economic burden that exists um, and the health um, uh, inconsistencies that exist um, with OSA. And I would hope that the um, AADSM will help be the, um, the go-to resource to help uh, dentists find their way and navigate their way to making a difference in this pretty exciting field. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, those are all my questions. Can you uh, tell our listeners where they can find you, any social media, any live virtual events, anything like that where our listeners can find you? Um, not necessarily to find me per se, but to find better, the, probably the AADSM. I think we can go to the, um, the web 
at um, aadsm.org, uh, Twitter at aadsm.org, and Facebook at you know, aadsm.org uh, as well. We offer um, a series of, of advanced educational opportunities through the mastery program, which can be done both virtually or um, in person, and you can um, contact the AADSM uh, for that as well. I think um, we're doing a, um, a novel job of um, providing both um, uh, didactic and clinical experience to um, uh, the, the, the uh, students who go through this, um, this uh, and dentists who go through this program. And um, I think there's a, um, a great opportunity to um, enhance your own skill set and feel comfortable uh, embarking on uh, the solution of, of oral appliance care um, through, this, through this venue. We also provide um, uh, alongside of mastery and within mastery um, management and, and treatment considerations in the pediatric population as well. Excellent. And if you want more from Sleep Review, uh, please visit us at www.sleepreviewmag.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Thank you for having me.